0: said This is Will James. It's my Twitter handle on my website. That would have made a lot more sense. But hey, we're winging it over here. So hey, welcome back. Um, if you have not listened to the last episode of this podcast called The Heavy One, then uh, this one probably won't make a lot of sense. So I suggest and hope that you would go back and listen to that one first. Uh, otherwise, you've stumbled into the middle of something that's kind of odd. Uh, so if you continue on, good for you. so yeah uh last time i walked you through one night one night with a very weird ending and we're going to get back to that but i need to take a moment to say something here about what it is i'm doing if i'm doing anything at all Uh, because after the last episode uh, posted a friend of mine asked me if my intention here was to bring people to christ Uh, and if so how could he help you know uh, others wondered was was this uh, the telling of my testimony? was this some type of altar call or these sermons? and I, I get where all of that's coming from, but I, honestly, I didn't think that story would be taken that way. I know it kind of fell apart there at the end, so I like I said, I get where the question comes from, but no, you know uh, that wasn't a sermon if 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 this is anything, it's uh, a confession. See, I didn't find God at the end of that podcast. I stopped trying to define him with borrowed terms. As Richard Rohr put it once, uh, God doesn't have grandchildren, only children. He says, each generation has to make its own discoveries of spirit for itself, otherwise react or conform to the previous generation, and often overreact and overconform. But in so doing, in my opinion, we're, you know, we're leaving God out of, that, out of that cycle altogether. This kind of shows up biblically. I mean, you look at the differences between Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. But additionally, God didn't continue to refer to himself just as the God of Abraham, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God. He didn't inherit him. So no, this isn't really some for someone looking to find God. This is it's for those of us confused in what he looks like because of the rest of his followers. Or for those of us lost along the path so much to earning it self-salvation and self-righteousness that we fail to even begin the real mission, love one another. Those of us trying shamefully to get a leg up with how loudly we can support or condemn anything or anyone on social media quick to find evil so we can deny it within ourselves, all the while forgetting the warning of the man we say we follow in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-four. Do you have any idea how silly you look writing a life story that's wrong from start to finish, while nitpicking over commas and semicolons? You know, my wife once said, we train ourselves to look for evil, all the while forgetting the training of how to look for God. I think that fits right in with what Richard Rohr was saying of reacting and overreacting and conforming to the previous generation instead of keeping the focus where it should be. And, and where I was when I left you last, I, I, I'd, I'd definitely forgotten the training. <laughs> it was the loneliest and most abandoned I'd ever felt in my life. And not, not just that night, of course. It's, it's very difficult to articulate how something like this occurs. I guess I was under the impression that there are specific moments you can point to that lead you to where I was. But depression comes at you from a lot of angles. It wasn't one thing in particular. It's death by a million paper cuts. Paper cuts that slowly begin to feel like these gaping wounds that may be beyond repair. For me, it was felt like life. The day to day, you know, this want for meaning and purpose, the the conflict of amassing more and more personal and professional responsibilities with less and less time. Y- your kids and your parents are both getting older and you're missing it. The, the less time you have for everything else, you realize how much less time you have left for yourself. For growing as a human, maturing mentally, physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, <clears throat> With less time to be you, figuring out who you want to be and how to become that becomes all-consuming. I mean, you've gotten this far, but where is it that you've gotten? And that's a cold, sobering look in the mirror, defining oneself. In the book, Falling Upward, it says, Most people's concerns remain those of establishing their personal or superior identities, creating various boundary markers for themselves, seeking security and perhaps linking to what seem like significant people or projects and this is a a problem that permeates through humanity and it's not a it's not a spiritual issue or a physical one it's everything you know, it matches in well with the, you know, the inherent flaw in the upward mobility model of success we subscribe to. This idea that we seed in our children's minds of what success is and how to attain it. Of course we mean well, we want the next generation to have it better than we had it, but we want to have it pretty good too. <laughs> we call it drive, ambition, progression. And these are great things, but it's too easy to twist this into a mindset of you aren't who you are, but what you do status success and these end up becoming signs of blessings from a deity somehow well when and how are we going to then take the next step because that's what it's all about right you know we could start at young public school private school top third top 10 ap courses extracurricular activities sports competition scholarships why for college of course but not just college but the right college the right major do you minor maybe a double major what student organizations are you getting involved with greek life internships or jobs jobs for money or experience gmat LSAT, mcat why the next step the real job the career the title the salary what's next find a mate get married have a kid have another public school private school <laughs> here we go again Here's the thing about the next step it's it's an illusion really yeah it's a pyramid scheme like no other you find yourself either digging yourself into debt or the family fortune until you earn some designation that puts you one rung up the ladder to success but now you're digging further into debt or the family fortune for life worth living home a car those schools we were talking about for the kids you work your way up the rungs But the more you earn, the more you spend, or the more is taken, or the more is called for. You begin to feel like you're losing more and more of the life you're working for. Not to mention the fact that at some point it becomes pretty obvious all your job is, is stuff your boss would do themselves if they had the time. Not an insult, just a reality. Your salary is a result of a cost-benefit analysis where someone said, I'm doing all I can time-wise, but there's more to be made here. If I did twice the work, I'd get twice the money, but who's got the time? I'll pay this guy a little bit to do a whole lot that I don't have time for, keep the rest as profit. Nothing's wrong with this scheme at all, particularly if you're the boss. But if you're not, no matter what you're getting paid, you're getting underpaid, always. and It's not socially cool to talk about it. And honestly, if you were getting paid what your work was worth, there'd be no reason to employ you. No one's in the game to break even. So with that in mind, somehow we've decided that what do you do is the most important jumpstart question in any conversation. How successful are you? What's your title? We define ourselves by the jersey bib number and the rat race. Defining ourselves by busy work, linking ourselves to significant people projects some are lucky enough to get out of it or lucky enough to find their life's passion and their employment in the same thing and at the same time some never do here's the point though find a person that meets these markers for success checks all the boxes on the list that we've pieced together from our parents dreams for us and our dreams for ourselves our heroes from sports film literature whatever reality stars are find those people ask them how it feels If they don't have their head lodged in their own exhaust pipes, nine times out of ten, they'll tell you the answers aren't there. There's nothing at the top of the ladder. It's not where happiness is, not peace of mind or joy, no 70 virgins. Nothing but more problems. Shout out to Biggie. Just the realization the ladder is a wheel. You're moving all right, but on the, the wrong axis. Eventually, you realize you're working towards getting to work forever and you can focus on promotions, titles, raises, bonuses, focus on setting out on your own one day, starting your own company. And somehow, even the best of the scenarios, you start thinking, aren't these all just versions of the same day, day after day? And I know this sounds like some hippie stuff. I get it. And I'm not saying <laughs> boo capitalism or anything like that or whatever. What I'm, I'm saying is being and doing aren't the same. Who you are and what you do don't necessarily have very much in common. You can't nine to five your way into a purpose. That's Is that what existence is? Is that what this is? How much wealth, prestige, or name recognition we can amass in the indeterminate amount of years our functional brains have been allotted? Is it the wealth of knowledge you can pass to the next generation just to have your son make a podcast like this about how none of this crap matters? In <laughs> the alternative, is it the constant struggle and striving and character development and behavior modification. Is there room for being presence and and, and joy? You know, a minister I listened to frequently said in a sermon uh, not too long ago that the the purpose of life is to figure out who God created you to be and apply your life's focus to becoming that. sounds like a beautiful concept, I suppose. And, But if this is true and you feel yourself caving in on yourself under pressure and pressure and pressure, you know, you know, I I found this great quote on depression. It goes, depression is living in a body that fights to survive with a mind that wants to die. When you feel like that, you don't feel capable of reaching who God created you to be. Also, side note. That's really easy for a minister to say when you think God created you to be a guy that tells people what God thinks for a living. (laughs) Anyway, uh, my point is there are many yolks, many burdens that become too heavy. And I'd convince myself to handle them all alone. You know, as I alluded to last time, when you're in that position, you start to feel toxic. You find ways to distance yourself from people closest to you because, well, you don't want your toxicity to rub off on them. You don't want them to notice something is wrong. You don't want them to see what you've become or what your biggest fears are, especially as a, as a man, a husband, and father raised on that old school, man is the rock of the family and uh, everything is built on you, spiritually, financially, emotionally, whatever. Your family is who you need but you're afraid to let them see all the gaps in the armor. So distance, distance, distance. It's not even really purposeful, not at first at least. I mean, here's a couple of things you should know about me. One, I have confusingly low self-esteem couched in complete self-assuredness. So (laughs) I think very little of myself except for how absolutely right I am in thinking that way. (laughs) Great combination. (laughs) And two, which is kind of an extension of number one, I'm an internal processor, and that if I'm struggling with something, as I demonstrated last episode, I'll work myself through any and all scenarios and outcomes inside my head before acting, which means by the time I've said something out loud, I think that I already know what everyone around me would say and how they would react. I've rehearsed the conversation we would have had if I'd included you. I read your lines, and you gave it a great effort, but ultimately... I get you on the same page as me. I win the argument about how horrible I am or how much better you'd be away from me or how with enough time and distance I can resolve whatever this is and it's better that I do it alone. I'd bring you down with me otherwise. So distance, distance, distance. Little by little, longer and longer. So you've gone inside so much you can't get back out. You know what they will say before they're, mouths even open so you don't say anything in, in retrospect i now know it's all lies of course the depressed mind can't really tell when it's wrong it feeds you these little subtle twists until you've convinced yourself that these conversations did happen and nothing good would come of them you know, people throw away their careers relationships marriages families and even their lives, because conversations they didn't actually have. I almost did. And remember, I'm completely self-assured, so I had no reason to think I was wrong. I was almost dramatically altering and irreversibly changing my whole family's life without giving any of them an opportunity to even portray a different perspective. I was ready to drop an atomic weapon without consulting anyone, And I was doing it for them, for their happiness, their souls. I was certain. The worst part is they hardly even knew anything was wrong, aside from me being a little more distant, a little more volatile. No one really notices at all. You still put on the show when friends come over, you know, at work, holidays, church, whatever. You put on the show. You have a couple of friends that you give a few hints to, but for the most part, you're doing it alone. It didn't start anywhere near that night I described to you last time, and it didn't end when I heard a thought. Like I said, this isn't a sermon. See, that sermon ends with this huge cloud lifting and emergent sun. That sermon ends with grace and a newfound understanding of what sin is, which brings a new understanding of what forgiveness is, what salvation is. That sermon ends beautifully. And I've got that sermon, I suppose. But this... This wasn't a sermon, this was a Tuesday. And on Wednesday, I had to get back up again and be Dada, honey, Mr. James. I had to put on my suit and go to work like every other day with this secret. I had I had what I believed to be a transcendent moment for sure, but there was no magic elixir. Depression doesn't work like that. It was an unmarked territory, or what I believed at the time to be so. So there's this weird... Phenomena. There's this cloud around depression or any other mental disorder or illness in American society, but particularly in the Christian world. I've noticed it over the years, and, and recently uh, I was reading in Christianity Today about this study that polled Protestant ministers on their views around the treatment of acute mental illnesses. It was interesting to note that out of 1,000 Protestant ministers... of them found the prescription of medications in one way or another to treat acute mental illnesses was an acceptable option, whereas only 78% advocated the use of therapy. Almost all ministers would have you drugged up, while only one in four would advise you not to talk about it. Only 26% of the ministers that are okay with therapy advocated the use of that therapy without first ensuring your therapist was a Christian, regardless of their conditionals or how good they may actually be at their job. Another study attacked the mental health services field in general, portraying them essentially as ambulance chasers for the sad, substituting a soft science as a rival religion, which considers the goals of therapy to supplant the atoning and cleansing work of Christ. I'm legitimately not sure where that even comes from. But basically, the assertion was ultimately, if you have God, you shouldn't really need to pay by the hour to have some friend. Now, maybe I speak too broadly and this isn't true where you're from, but I have a feeling that in the parts of the world, this is true. It's very true. Many explanations are commonly given, which usually have something to do with not liking Freud or Jung in a moral context, so anything tangentially related to them is fruit of the poisonous tree. To be blunt, I think it boils down to a shockingly anti-biblical view of the enmeshment of faith and happiness, and then, of course, happiness and mental health. Most of the religious community seems to have come around on the scientific advancements in physical health, But mental health somehow still lags behind. Lots of people will use lots of big words to explain why this is. But the truth is, issues of the mind are considered character flaws, not medical conditions. And that's not a Christian-specific thing. That's a lot of people. The difference is, uh, an ignorant person might mock you for seeing a shrink. Whereas, some Christians will tell you there's a fundamental problem between you and the creator and the sustainer of the universe causing this depression because our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities powers rulers of the darkness of the world and spiritual weakness in high places right you're depressed because you're losing that struggle <laughs> i mean i'm married to a licensed professional counselor and i still adamantly thought therapy was for other people not people like me whose family and faith is strong I got a nice little pamphlet about dealing with depression from the Adventist library and everything, and that was supposed to fix it all, right? You know, as Matthew Stanford, a professor of psychology, neuroscience, and biomedical studies at Baylor said, someone who struggles with depression is struggling with feelings of inadequacy and worthiness, and these are physiological feelings that are perceived by the brain as thoughts of, I'm worthless and I can't be loved. But if that individual is a person of faith, the first thought might be, God can't love me. What's funny is is now, you know, a couple of years later, it's absolutely bizarre to me that there's a controversy for any sex or groups inside of Christianity when it comes to psychology at all. If there's a point today, it's pointing out this problem, um, This idea of if you're doing it right, the only thing you should ever need for any circumstance is the Bible. The answer's in there, and if you pray and study hard enough, that's all you'll need. And that's not just a suggestion. Differing on that opinion doesn't end up in some regular disagreement among rational adults. It becomes a comparison of your faith versus mine, or my lack of it. You know, a good friend of mine and I commonly talk about this kind of thing, and he he voices this frustration, you know. Whenever anyone has a problem, no matter what it is, the answer is just pray, pray, give it to God, let Jesus take the will. If you have a problem, big or small, just pray it away. If that doesn't work, pray harder, believe more. I mean, it only takes faith the size of a mustard seed to move mountains, so why are your little problems not moving? Maybe most people don't think about it when they speak, but that's a problem. I don't think you should get a pass for that. You can't just spread random cliches around like cover fire or there's going to be more innocent casualties than any positive result. But when you grow up in that worldview, when this idea of an instant karmic magic genie Jesus not only can but will make the way and for those that love him and more importantly those he loves that he will do, well there can be significant negative side effects if he doesn't. And if he doesn't, There's no more hope for you other than more cliches. And if you're suffering from depression, every day it doesn't go away is another sign of your lack of faith, your lack of growth, another sign that you aren't stacking up. You're late on your afterlife insurance premium. You're delinquent on your self-salvation projects. A reminder that the benevolent, all-knowing, all-loving creator of all things must not be able to hear you for some reason, or he doesn't care. And when you're depressed, you're depressed right then. And when it's still there tomorrow, those cliches don't do anything for you. They just make you doubt yourself more, look down on yourself more. You know, there's this guy, uh, Mike McCargue, Science Mike. Uh, He's a smart guy, smarter than me. And uh, he explains something about the brain. There's this portion of the brain, the thalamus, which is believed to be the seat of self. It's this walnut-sized glob of goodness at the base of your brain, where all the information from your various senses pass through before reaching their ultimate destinations for their ultimate purposes. So everything we take in is filtered through this one spot of our identity before being processed. In the brains of the religious, theists, individuals who in their life practice, believe, and focus on a god for some particular length of time per day, and this is scientifically shown in tests multiple multiple tests you you see some consistency there and uh, these individuals thalamuses actually change shape Uh, it's as if one side shrinks to make the other side larger as if the place in your brain meant for self shrinks to make room for this god you're focusing on now this to me, I, I'm not a doctor, a neurologist or anything, I'm just a guy talking here, but this suggests to me that the things that we process get processed by the religious through a filter of not only their unique sense of self, which is already distorted from reality, but also through what they believe about their God and what their God wants for them. So that depending on what God you're sold, your entire worldview can become quite skewed. If you believe the sign of not only your faith, but also God's favor favor is answered prayers and those answers don't come then you're either faithless or God doesn't love you and God not showing up is not an option to the believer so to take that option atheism becomes your only route otherwise you're just a useless lost hopeless faceless person God's forgotten he won't answer you because of that thing in your life that you won't let go or the language you use around your boys or because of what you eat, drink, watch, and listen to. So you start to tweak those activities, clean up your life, and maybe you're already straight-laced. Good for you. But bad things keep happening. Famine, earthquakes, drought, economic strife, terrorism, both foreign and domestic. Well, then if it's not you, it must be this godless nation, these unbelieving, sinful, evil people around us keeping us from god's blessings and grace it's it's your neighbors adam and steve it's whether or not your chicken spot is open on sundays it's whether or not the ten commandments are proudly cemented in the front of your capital or loss of prayer in schools it's why the conflicts are unbending it's it's why people boycott stores and refuse to make wedding cakes it's why people bomb abortion clinics which is ultimately the Sat sad on a whole additional level, because it's not even about the babies to many of them. It's not angering their Santa Claus. But this is also the reason people burned crosses, lynched black people, flew planes into buildings, and generally won't calm down in the Middle East ever at all. They have no choice. It's what their God requires of them. If things are getting worse around you, you have to change something or someone For God to fix it, like the Oklahoma legislature said about the bill to prosecute doctors for providing abortions in Oklahoma, even though the abortion itself would technically still be legal, instead of our state's $1.3 billion deficit. If we take care of the morality, God will take care of the economy. No people say stuff like that, and everyone cheers and says amen or whatever. That statement doesn't make any sense. That's not... It's stupid. It's why it's why Christians are the least likely to believe in climate change and the human influence on it. it. God wouldn't let us destroy this place. We live here. Well, not to slide off on this tangent, my evangelical brethren, but the Bible talks about the world ending in times of trouble in the future already, but doesn't specifically say what happens. Making this place uninhabitable through our own doing is not off the tables, ladies and gentlemen. Read about Sodom and Gomorrah and Uncle Noah if you think a reset button isn't in the repertoire. But that's beside the point. There's this additional unique issue when you're struggling with depression. It's personal. God's upset with you. I'll do you one better from the other side of the spectrum. For many religious people, the first thought might be that God can't love them. But the second thought becomes, maybe God's putting me through this on purpose because he loves me. I was reading this article on the Adventist.org website, and there was this guy who was diagnosed as bipolar. He couldn't figure out why this was happening to him until he read Proverbs 3.5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's what hit him. He would prided himself on his intelligence and abilities, skipping grades, going to academic summer camps, college classes, in high school. Despite God's warnings against pride, he'd let his intelligence go to his head, he wrote. So God humbled him. Let his mental illness run its course, taking away the abilities that he'd prided himself of the most. Yeah, that's gross. I, tr- I trust the Lord not to give me mental illnesses just to take me down a notch. A C- minus on a couple of tests would have sufficed. So what God were you sold? Well, that's where I left you last, and that was not the end or the hard part. (laughs) Suicidality, depression, feeling like my family would be better off without me in one way or the other, death, divorce, disappearance, whatever. I was just looking for answers, and I was also looking for a way out. I was afraid. I was ashamed. What was worse, I wasn't coming into the faith. I'd been here forever, and there really isn't much sympathy for that in my experience. What I had was a wife and a family that I'd slowly alienated, who just wanted to understand where I was coming from. The people I had slowly cut out of my process actually wanted back in. Realizing that and accepting it as true wasn't easy, because in that state, you've convinced yourself completely otherwise. It took time, still taking time, plenty of therapy, a little medication now and then, yoga, meditation, strict morning routine, two bicycles, and yeah, prayer and study. But a corner has turned. I'm still a real bummer to be around from time to time, but the hopelessness is gone. And no, I didn't ask my therapist if she was a Christian first. Still haven't asked her, and I don't particularly care. Honestly, I still don't really know what all the individual problems were. I just know I realized most of them were lies. My wife and I started to try and close the distance. I pulled her into the process, told her everything I knew, everything I felt, everything I thought. No holds barred. And lo and behold, even though I'd rehearsed these conversations internally so many times, now that I actually let her have them with me, I found out the voice in my head for her was a lie too. She didn't have the reactions I thought she would. She didn't say the things I thought she'd say necessarily. I don't remember specifically what we discussed. I just remember her not doing what I had convinced myself she'd do. And those gaping wounds began to close. They didn't close automatically. I want to point out that this is a process. But they began to heal. She planted a little seed of doubt in my doubts. It was a small first step, but a first step. And when she did have the reactions I thought she would, her willingness to listen to my concerns or try and adapt in ways I thought impossible felt nothing short of miraculous. When you don't know how to change yourself, you tend to think other people can't do it either. But I'm suggesting you today to allow yourself the chance to be surprised. Otherwise, you'll have the rest of your life to regret not allowing for that. Many things can be taken back. Very few can't. Just be careful. Of course, not everyone fit this bill for me. Some reactions and advice was as advertised, and that's fine too. With the same good friend I mentioned before, and I've been in lockstep quite a bit. My brother-in-law Jason was there for me and related to certain religious issues I was having in a way I couldn't have foreseen but definitely needed. Affirmation. Affirmation. You know, the most important thing is I began to realize I really wasn't alone. Life is a team sport, and I've been playing hero ball for too long. It was a bit like the old story of the man drowning in the ocean, praying to God to come save him when a boat floats by, offering a life preserver. The man says, no, thank you. I'm waiting on God to save me. Then the Coast Guard shows up with a lifeboat. Man gives the same answer. A helicopter pilot flies over, drops a ladder. The man again says, no, thank you. I'm waiting on God to save me. Ultimately, he drowns and winds up at heaven's gates where he sees God and says, God, how did I end up dying? I prayed and for you to save me. I believed you would save me and you never came. And God replies, I have no idea why you're up here. I sent a boat, a coast guard, and a helicopter for you. This makes no sense to me either. Thank God family is still there, even when you do everything you can to make sure they aren't. And thank God I let people in before I push them too far away. You know, you can pray and you can look and you can hope. But God's answered prayers are already all around you in the form of the people you've surrounded yourself with. So look at the answers. Now, I feel like I've just scratched the surface here and there's so much more to this weird story and there's so much more to say. And I've been all over the place in this one, but I'll just go back to where I started and this issue of defining oneself, causing and adding to all of this pressure. See, I just don't think that's the goal. Becoming who God created you to be. I I don't even really know what that's supposed to mean, but I, I struggle to accept that the God I've read about, the, the, the God I feel, the Jesus from the book, would want me to focus all my energies on myself and how much I can accomplish, even if that accomplishment is becoming more like him. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that the focus is inward instead of outward. The, the triune existence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit itself, it suggests a continual outflowing of constant selflessness. You know that story in Matthew about clothing the naked and caring for the sick and visiting those in prison? We tend to focus on the people on the left that the king says didn't do the work. Uh, but, but did you ever notice that the people on the right who did do the right thing, who, who fed and clothed, they didn't know that they'd done anything. They weren't attempting to become something. They weren't trying to earn anything. Their works weren't some kind of attempt to get somewhere. They didn't know why they were there at all. The king had to explain it. They were pouring out. I'm saying, what if the goal was to find the divine instead of ourselves? You know, Matthew 10.39 says, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find it. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. What if God wanted me to be me? And you to be you. What if he actually does love us as he created us? And the lessons we learn along the way inform our souls of where we are, why we are, and whose. Now, this is not to suggest there's not growth. Don't run away yet with that. But, but what if the urgency was for your peace that you can have now instead of just a promise for later? You know, there's this quote and I'll leave you with this by Abraham Joshua Heschel, which says the focus of prayer is not the self. It's a momentary disregard of our personal concerns, the absence of self-centered thoughts, which actually constitute the art of prayer. Feeling becomes prayer in the moment which we forget ourselves and become aware of God. Thus, in beseeching him for bread, there is this one instant, at least, in which our mind is directed neither to our hunger, nor to food, but to his mercy. This instant is prayer. What if life is finding more of those instances? <laughs> so may we find them more often. Well, listen, I've got to end this one. There's so much left to talk about, like I said. I'll try not to leave you waiting as long next time if anyone is still out there listening to this. So get at me at ThisIsWillJames on Twitter. Go to ThisIsWillJames.com and from there you can click to subscribe to the podcast, visit the Facebook page, the Twitter feed, or send me an email, whatever. Leave a review, something on iTunes, if you want to, I don't really care. Until whenever I have time to record another one, this has been... You are not listening to this. And and now, here's we'll to magnify, magnify, lift it on high. Spit a Spotify to qualify a spot on his side. I cannot modify, ratify. My mama made me apple pies, lullabies, and alibis. The book don't end with malachi. Devil will win employee of the month by the dozen to one scoring